welcome to Say That, the podcast for your big questions to get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us this week is Glenn Fitzgerald. I'm under protest. Also joining us all the way from Rutgers, Tennessee, Lee Younger. I miss all the Jeds. Not just Jed, all the Jeds. Yes, not with us this week, regular co-host and a man who contains multitudes, most of them <laughs> with disturbing <laughs> southern accents and really confusing <laughs> speech patterns. One Jed Brewer, off on special assignments. We, we do miss him terribly, but we are going to soldier on. And in his memory, which I want to be very clear, he's, he's in good health. He's just busy this evening. So. <laughs> uh, but in his stead, might be the better way to put that, uh, we're going to declare an emergency based on an article that Jed found this week and sent wow. three of us in a group text. And I can think of no better nor more necessary introduction than the headline from HuffPost.com. E.T. phone hell? Creationist Ken Ham says Jesus can't save space aliens. Oh, gosh. Wow. Oh, gosh. And then, look, I think you're the one who noted this, Lee. Would you like to share with the people? So there's a headline you see, and then there's a subheadline, which in this one is the Noah's Ark guy is being rude to extraterrestrials. Again. Again. <laughs> Come on, dude. Bro. Wait, you already were rude to space aliens? Which, if you if you aren't aware, creationist Ken Ham the, is the we talked about some of his nonsense before. He's like he did a bunch of weird debates against Bill Nye the Science Guy, and Gosh. he's like his answers in Genesis is his thing. And his main deal at this point is he built a giant Noah's Ark themed attraction in Kentucky, mm. not far from where my in laws live, and that says a lot <laughs> about everyone involved. Um, but to to Lee's point, the the masterful piece of writing in this thing before we get into all the other craziness is. Just just reading the headline, it is implied that this is at least the second time this guy has talked about aliens being hellbound. The sentence that jumped out at me was, salvation through Christ is only for the Adamic race. I, I think he just made up a word of yeah. if you're descended from Adam. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, uh, first of all, don't make up words. Second of all, what part of the the Bible is that written in? You you just get the sense that using the word human sounded too close to being a Unitarian to this guy, so we had to make up look, something. Here's my thing: is look, you you look in the original language, which we all know that that Glenn holds the uh, the key card to the the Bible Nordatorium, but we uh, you can. Go down there and find the original Greek in Romans chapter 12 when it says that, that believers in Jesus will be, uh, you know, hospitable. What that actually says is that you will love the outsider, the foreigner, the xenos. And that's, that's the original language. I, I, I lifted the, the key card from Glenn, but that's what the original language says. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus loves the extraterrestrial Ken. Deal with it. All right. Yeah. So as, as we move on through this article, because it is just it is just packed with crazy, crazy peanuts. Um, so Jesus came to save us, not to another planet to save another race of beings, Ham wrote on Twitter, adding with the Edemic race thing. So then we cut to on the bright side, however, Ham said we won't need they won't need redemption anyway, since they don't exist. The Bible, according to his strict interpretation, says only Earth was made to be inhabited. And the other quote, and the other celestial bodies were created for signs, season, days, and years. Oh. He tweeted. 
And there's just a wonderful Dunning-Kruger effect and how happy the most empty-headed amongst us are because for eons, man has stared at the stars and wondered what it means and what his place in it is, and it's been the subject of of paintings and poetry and song and deep thought. Leave it to Ken Ham to be like, nah, I got it figured out. I can tell you exactly (laughs) what's going on. Don't you worry about it. That's right. So... Let me just put this out there because I have a lot of feelings on this. But if you're trying to tell me there's no way for Chewbacca to get saved. Oh, my goodness. We're going to have this is going to be a very seriously heated conversation. Yeah, it's a different heated conversation than any uh, astrophysicist or astrologer trying to explain to Glenn that uh, Wookiees are not necessarily... Space aliens as much as fictional characters. We don't have the time. There's not enough recording software in the world to have that conversation. <laughs> I, I mean, they come from outer space. Period. So also, you know, you could say it's a figment of my imagination, but I've seen that wiki with my own two eyes <laughs> right there on the screen. <laughs> I don't know what we're even talking about. Listen, there was a key you... word in that sentence right there <laughs> on the screen. Listen, you, you, yeah, but you heard him with your ears, Glenn, when he said, <laughs> you heard him. Sure, that could be the Wookiee Center's prayer for all we know. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm trying to say here is, uh, if you tell me that, oh, it, first of all, I don't even know how we can get it in our minds that Wookiees wouldn't be open to the gospel. Period. Uh, I mean, clearly, Preach. you know what I mean? Like, you can't just say, uh, you know, I don't think they'd be interested, so forget about it. Come on. So that's a, such a good point. Also, if you're going to try to tell Matt King's wife that Grogu can't be saved, or is it, it, that Grogu's name isn't written in the Book of Life, you better, you better watch out. Maybe wear some head Dude. protection. Well, that brings us to exactly on that uh, note that Glenn and Lee are bringing up there. Not only is it just a weird thing to say, uh, it also just shows a fundamental lack of whimsy because uh, they pointed in HuffPost, uh, Ham has made similar comments before, writing in 2004, quote, Jesus did not become the God Klingon or the God Martian. Only Lord. descendants of Adam can be saved. That's, you sold two movie tickets right there just with those names. You give me either the God Klingon or the God Martian. I know I don't need to know anything else about it. Just sold. I'm telling you. Wow. We have a whole genre of speculative science fiction that goes unexplored. Look, this is for a very small portion of our audience, but Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane asking the disciples, uh, do you have any battleths? Yeah. Is right. a is a strong verse. Well, he who lives the, by the Batleth dies by the Batleth, Lee. Ah, thank you. That's right. <laughs> well, it's it's uh, it's much more inspirational in, in the original Klingon, but here's what I'm trying Most to say. <laughs> I mean, you're t- the, this, this article does say something I very much agree with. Uh, uh, Pope Francis, for example, has said that he would baptize Martians if they came to Earth and asked. Very important, that second part, and asked. That's, you can't just well, go throwing right. water on people who come from other planets. It's not polite. That's if if we've learned nothing from science fiction, it's don't throw unwanted liquids at aliens. 
but th- this what I'm saying is, uh, first of all, I didn't even know Martians might be coming, so that's exciting. Uh, uh, also, um, I I I do want to point out before this dude was convinced that aliens couldn't get in, there were a lot of humans he was also convinced couldn't get in either. So okay, that that, that might be that may be the origin of some of this thinking. My favorite part of this article, Matt, sorry to cut you off, is that the article asserts that the late evangelist Billy Graham says, I firmly believe there are intelligent beings like us far away in space who worship God. That is my favorite part of the article, period, end of discussion. Yeah, and why do I have the sense that maybe that sentence came up as the prospect of fundraising for some kind of interstellar spacecraft so that there could be a rally on Alpha Centauri was kind of the context in which we were bringing that up. Look, if he could get closer to Billy Graham's Bible blasters, that would be worth it. He just winged him and made him Ken Ham. (laughs) (laughs) What I want to know, I'm about to blow y'all's mind. Are you ready for that? Here's what if there's outer space aliens, they already know about God, and they come to Earth and they see your silly little church with the laser beams and the fog machine, and they want to know what's up, and the laser pistols have been drawn. Uh oh. See what I'm saying? You you might be dealing with a situation where you have to explain some of your funky, weird church behavior, or else, you know, they're going to, whatever they do, you know, suck out your brains or whatnot. Yeah, there's another theological uh, interesting point that brings up a possible science fiction movie franchise uh, where uh, a gentleman, uh, Jesuit father Jose Funes, says, God became man in Jesus in order to save us. So if there are also other intelligent beings, it's not a given that they need redemption. They might remain in full friendship with their creator, which is a really interesting premise. But the better premise, I think, is that every... uh, intergalactic species gets its own Jesus and leaning into some kind of league of Jesus's situation. Oh gosh. Kind of like the green lantern core, but they're all Jesus's right. There's the pig one and there's the yellow one and all these kind of things. Well, then you got your uh, parallel universes and whatnot. I mean, uh, those are all the rage, you know, uh, uh, here's another science fiction, uh, suggestion pretty sure this came from a terminator movie where he said you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces you yourselves do not enter nor will you let those who wish to enter uh, mm. i think that was uh, uh that might have been a faster and furious quote i'm not sure but you know it's uh, it's stuck in my mind sounds like the movies yeah. i think james cameron's gonna hunt you down for comparing those two movie franchises but <laughs> that could just be me Well, I think this has given us all a lot to chew on, and I think to go back to where Lee started us off, the most important thing to take from all this is that whoever this journalist is, or this group of people who keep making Ken Ham go on record with quotes about aliens, are the real heroes. We salute their work, and if someone has really, really bad, annoying opinions, 
I think the lesson is sure you could get in there and you could go with like, so 6,000 years, you're just, you're just going with that. That's what we're doing. And here's a fossil record and here's a thing. And it's a metaphorical language. Or you could just say, well, this guy's clearly off his rocker. What do you think about aliens there, Ken? <laughs> and to quote friend of the show, Austin White, as Lee was reminding us, content doesn't sleep. So when you got a content right. factory, sometimes you just got to keep going until the well runs dry. And that is why in this show, we are never clear of emergencies. But for now, we're going to declare emergency off possible interstellar missions trip still on. Mm. <laughs> now, for now, we don't have that kind of technology, but if you would like to uh, you know, support our dreams of building some sort of interstellar space cruiser so that Glenn can fulfill his true ministry destiny in reaching out to the Wookiees, you can head on over to missionusa.com slash bridgebox. $8 a month at a time if we get enough of them. Apparently, you can just... If you get enough money, you can just be like, hey, I go to space now, and they let you do it. So, uh, you know, we're on that track. But for now, that's going to continue to go to fund our Deacons program. Great folks doing great work here in Chicago. MissionUSA.com slash Bridgebox. You can, of course, also join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. Central Time. Facebook.com slash The Bridge Chicago for our Bridgecast. If you can't catch that live, it is conveniently archived for you over to our Facebook page. If you're going on a trip to Mars and you need a lot of Bridgecasts, you can just... Go rip them all off Facebook and just save them for yourself. They are very, Period. very convenient. For now, we're going to jump to our first question. If the handle's all the way to the end, I'll give you some ways you can touch this, or you can scroll down into your episode description and click the links you find there. Our first question comes in and says, A friend of mine passed recently. I struggle with letting go on a situation like that, and I know that is what grief is. How can God help me grieve in a way that I can finally let go? And Glenn, it's an excellent question. We, we always appreciate the rawness. We always appreciate the honesty. And where would we start off with this? Well, it is actually a great question. And I'll tell you part of the reason why it's a really, really good question is that if you learn a good template for grieving a big sorrow like this, it becomes a way to process strong emotions of just about any kind, particularly, mm. uh, you know, any kind of a, a sadness, any kind of a, you know, disappointment, those kinds of things. Uh, so it's, it is a good thing to, you know, meditate on as far as that goes. Here's the main wrong way. Let's start with that. The main wrong way to grieve is to put it off. That's, mm. that's the main thing that we want to make sure that we don't do. Um, there's a tendency, I think, for us to look at grief and um, almost uh, convince ourselves in some sort of way that it would be healthier and better if we did not accept it. <laughs> that sounds crazy to say out loud. Acceptance ought to be the goal, but you know, uh, if you if if you tell people in that avoidance mindset that you have grief, they'll say, "Ah, oh, well, they're in a better place." Okay, I I believe that, but I still miss them. Am I allowed to do that? Is that okay? Can I have some feelings here? Can you know? Are we being sympathy uh, stingy with sympathy for some reason? Uh, it, there are times when we say, uh, you know, I, I you know I want to uh, celebrate their life. Well, that's good. You should celebrate their life, but 
you, you should also be able to spend some time processing that grief. Yeah. Uh, so the acceptance piece versus the avoidance piece, that's the key thing to look at with grief. Uh, that means facing things head on. And that can be overwhelming. It can be you know, upsetting. It can, it can really just take all our, our needles into the red there. So I think the key strategy we want to have is we're dealing with acceptance we're, or, or, you know, working towards acceptance and we're facing this thing head on is to recognize that I need to do that uh, in short bursts. I need to be able to do that step by step, little bit by little bit, I need to be able to take that grief and do my grief work, you know, process how I feel about it. Yeah. And then I need to be able to put that on the shelf and say, I'm going to get on with the rest of my day and I'm going to be on something else. I'm going to be thinking about something else. I'm going to have feelings about other things besides this. I'm giving myself permission to not think about this and not dwell on it because I will eventually overload myself. I will just get to a point of getting very upset. And that might affect. If I if I'm in addiction recovery, that could definitely have caused problems. If I have problems with existing relationships, you know, if I if I have marriage problems and I'm just you know wallowing in that kind of grief, then that's going to end up causing problems with that marriages. It's going to lead to sort of a more of a selfish type mindset that I'm dealing with, and all those things. I'm better off just taking that little bit by little bit. Maybe I just schedule that. So I'm going to. Mm. Take an hour. This is how, what I I'm going to feel yeah. my feelings for an hour. I'm going to think about it. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to pray about it. Maybe that's writing in a journal. Uh, you, you whatever way you do it. I don't know that there's a wrong way as long as you're facing it and working through it and processing that. But you're not wallowing in it. So you're not underdoing it. You're not overdoing mm. it. You're finding that balance point where it's being processed. One way or another, messy. I don't. Again, I don't think the methodology matters. Uh, it, it, and it's good to find what works for you, but it's important to recognize that if you purposely let yourself overload and get to a point where you can't handle it anymore, then you end up getting right back to that avoidance. So, mm. finding a way to keep in motion with it is the key thing. I think it's a really, really cool place to start that off. And Lee, as we're talking about that kind of emotional landscape of it, I like that our friend in the question here says, I, I struggle and I think that's what grief is. But I think if we're going to look at grief, we do have to maybe start by acknowledging that grief encompasses almost every emotional reaction and none of them are wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I really like the, the way that you're uh, laying that out, Matt, because I, I think the the one thing that that we can say from a perspective of of a person that knows the Lord is the Lord that wants you to feel all the things that you feel, but he wants you to do that with hope. That's that's kind of the biblical response, is that we grieve, but we grieve with hope. We don't grieve like people who have no hope. That's the that's the uh the the kind of the strict biblical version of that. So what that means is is that we can be honest about the fact that we're sad our friend is gone. Uh, sadness, that's allowed. Tears, they're allowed. Um, just grief is allowed. We can be hurt that, uh, that we can no longer talk to somebody that we could talk to before. 
uh, that we can't, I can't talk to somebody that I love for now. We can be honest about the fact that we have pain over the separation that we feel. The fact that we feel a lot of kind of weirdness and mystery over uh, they're gone, but somehow uh, they're in eternity or whatever. Like all of that stuff is mysterious to us. And we can be honest about the fact that that's weird. Um, but we do all of those things with hope. So the, the, I think the key thing here is realizing is that exactly as Matt set this up, that, um, that you get to feel all of the things that you feel, and none of those things are out of bounds, but we put all of those things through the lens of hope. So um, <clears throat> we, we don't have to completely let that person go because we're going to get to see that person again. Um, the thing, the thing that we let go of is not dis- is is not that person, but we actually just let go of despair. It's kind of the one emotion that we need really need to guard against as we're working through grief. Despair says the relationship is over. I, I'm my my story with that person has been written in full, and there are no more. Uh, chapters to be written in that in, in that story, and the cool thing is that's not actually true. Because of the hope that we have in Jesus, um, we get to actually dismiss that one emotion, despair. So if we're sad, we get to feel sad. If we have pain, we get to feel pain. If we are frustrated or we feel confused by the mystery of eternity, we get to feel all of those things. And the Lord doesn't want us to judge any of that. The one thing that we need to guard against and kind of block off is the idea of despair. So we feel sadness with hope. We feel frustration or confusion with hope. We feel mystery with hope. All of that stuff is is seen through the lens of the hope of eternity, that our relationship with this person is not over. We are going to see them again. Our story together is not over. Um, our experiences together are not over. I don't understand all of that stuff, and I can't really comprehend that now, but I'm going to push aside despair. And in the midst of that, I'm going to do all that grief work that Glenn was talking about. I'm going to set aside some time for that. I'm going to, you know, uh, for this point, you know, portion of the day, I'm going to look at old pictures or I'm going to look at, you know, journal some things out or whatever it is. And I'm going to feel all the things I feel. But the one thing I'm going to block against is the idea that our relationship is over. So I can be sad with hope. I can be confused with hope. I can be frustrated with hope, but I'm not going to despair because there is a future. There is more to the story of our relationship. I think that's such a great point. To piggyback off that, I will uh, very early in the episode, earlier than normal, give you your Matt ripping off Frederick Buechner quote of the week, uh, which is uh, is a a great quote, and it's one that's really meant a lot to me when I uh, have been mourning, particularly the the losses of, of people. And he is talking about physically moving away, but I think it, it works for people passing away as well. He says, at the same time, you carry them with you in your heart, your mind, your stomach, because you do not just live in a world, but a world lives in you. Mm. So I think to, to Lee's point about some of the, maybe what we want, feel the need to grieve is the finality of it, that this is all over, that there's this huge hole in our life. You definitely still have a relationship with this person. It's, it's different. It's a bit odd. It's, it's kind of phased out of time and, and physical space, but, but it's still 
very, very much there. And to that point, I don't think you talk about grieving in a way that you can finally let go, which totally makes sense. But I'm not sure it's it's the healthiest goal, really. You certainly want to be able to to move on. You don't want this to be the thing overwhelming and defining your emotional state because that's just we can't live like that. But I don't think you have to let go of this person. I don't think you have to let go of, of loving that's this right. person, of remembering this person. Um, I think what we want to do is grieve in a way that helps us accept this new relationship we have to this person. Um, and that's, there's a lot to grieve in that, you know, they're not going to be around. You're not going to be able to physically talk to them. All that makes sense. But I don't, I would say you don't have to let go of them. And because of that, you don't have to face that, that idea of an ending. This is not a finality thing. That's totally over, which hopefully will free you up to do the honesty and the really looking at things that both of these guys were talking about. Move on to our second question here. It comes in anonymously and says, Any tips on how to let go of feelings of resentment and bitterness coming from an old family wound? Even though the incident happened many years ago, these feelings still linger every now and then and make it hard for me to truly forgive my family and to trust God because I can't help but feel like he didn't do anything about it. And another great question, a deep question, a really honest question. And Lee, where would we start out with all this? This is a... It's 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 kind of a tender question for me because I've had some experiences, uh, specifically with family members, that have been uh, hard for me and frustrating for me, and and times where I've looked at the Lord and said, like, w- what are you doing? Why would you let this come into my court? Um, why would you let this happen to me? And you know, and some of those things have have uh, kind of transpired over years and years and years, and I've just to be perfectly frank, I've got some old family wounds. And the way that I look at them now, kind of years later, is in, in, in kind of working to let them go, it's a mixture of a couple of things. One is kind of setting up healthy boundaries with family members and um, being honest about the things that I've learned or gained from those experiences. So um, to kind of break that down... Some really awful things happened in my family. Some things I really hoped wouldn't happen, but they did. Um, relationships breaking down, people being um, really, really out of pocket, all that kind of stuff. And um, and they were awful and they were painful and I had some trauma based on that, all, all that kind of stuff. And um, a couple of things happened in that. One, I was forced into positions where I had to kind of set up and then figure out how to maintain some boundaries that I normally wouldn't have done on my own. My my kind of nor- normal vibe is to just kind of keep peace at all times. Just do whatever it takes to 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 kind of keep the peace. And um I, I got into situations where I had to set up and maintain some boundaries that were difficult for me just kind of based on my personality. Not only that, I I found myself having to grow into situations that I never would have chosen, uh, grow into conversations and difficult, just kind of difficult positions where I, I recognized in myself, like, dude, you're like, you're growing in some maturity and some, and some discernment and some difficult stuff. All that to say through some really, really crappy family things I would not have chosen, I have looked back years later and seen in myself 
things the Lord, like crappy situations the Lord has used to develop in me um, kind of some backbone, some uh, skills, some um, some language, some 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 things that that I didn't I, I would never have developed on my own if I had not been forced into those positions. Um, so setting up and maintaining boundaries in um, discerning uh, health and unhealth in relationships that I'm in, um, deciding what I will and won't do, all, all of those things, all that to say, like, I'm seeing the Lord at work in difficult things where if he had just straight up answered my prayer the way I would have wanted, I never would have been put in the situations where I had to grow in those places. Um, it's it's caused me to trust him in a weird way. Um, if if he had just answered my prayers, then I wouldn't have grown. Because I've grown, um, I'm a completely different person, and it's and it's enabled me to face some some really difficult situations in a totally different way than I wouldn't have been able to before. And so it, it, in a weird way, it's caused me to trust him in a different way on the backside of having grown on the backside of having developed and changed and matured in some really critical skills relationally and all that kind of stuff. It's caused me to trust him to say, you know what you're doing because you're growing me in ways I would not have chosen to grow myself. That to say, family stuff is hard, man. It's, it's, it's complicated. It hurts. It, it catches you off guard and it forces you to the point where you have to decide who you're going to be and how you're going to be in different situations. They, it's, it's frustrating and confusing, but the growth that you get out of it is the growth that that is going to help you through the rest of the relationships you're going to have in your life. All that to say, in my situation, I've seen the Lord at work, and I hope that um, as you work your way through this, that you can see He's at work for you in the same way. I think that's a really, really strong and well-put point, and a really good place to start this discussion off. And Glenn, I'd love to get you to pick us up there, because in that last segment we were talking about with, with grieving the idea of uh, I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to let go of something. And I think a lot of that's going to transfer over kind of into what we're talking about here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think, uh, like Lee, this is definitely a question I can relate to very specifically in terms of old family wounds. But, you know, as you're talking there, I have a theory, and here's my theory. I think there's something unique and significantly bad about a situation that's never apologized for, that no one's ever taken responsibility for. And here's why. Because I think that when someone wrongs you and then they don't apologize for it, Mm. then I think you can, you can, you can believe and know and analyze and decide this person's wrong. At first, you just feel angry, and so you, you know, angry people always think they're right. I can say that as a person who's angry a decent amount of the time, but you know, uh, but then you say, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm at fault here a little bit. Maybe I'm wrong. You analyze, 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 and you say, no, this person's wrong. Everyone says they're wrong. I know it's wrong. It's wrong. Okay, fine. But my theory is that when people don't take responsibility. 
there's some small part of you who still thinks maybe, maybe, mm. maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I'm blowing things out of proportion. Maybe I don't, I'm not remembering things right. You still carry it if they don't take that off of you. That's a uniquely cruel thing to do. Mm. If you've done something wrong, you can you can just own up to it. And and forgiveness comes a lot easier than we think when someone is taking full responsibility and is saying, I was in a bad place, I was yeah, being I irresponsible. That's a you mm-hmm. we could work through that. But someone who's saying, Hey, isn't it a little bit everybody's fault? I mean, I was at fault a little bit, but then you kind of blew it out of proportion. And then you said things that were very hurtful. So it's sort of like we were all a little bit wrong. Let's just, you know, whitewash over it and move on. That's super, super, super next level awful. It's because they're manipulating you into punishing yourself for having been mistreated. <laughs> That's There's a lot to forgive there when yeah. when you start adding that stuff up. Here's a second layer of this because you're talking about old family wounds. It's not always, you know, if you're talking about a family dynamic, it's not always just the person who did it did wrong. It's the enablers who are mm. also involved in that process. Super true. Uh, you know, in in my family, there there was always one person misbehaving and everyone else saying, "Well, maybe if you were a little nicer." And those are the people that I wake up in the middle of the night fantasizing about pinching their head off their shoulders because, you know, you, you don't tell somebody who's been mistreated if you acted nicer or, the, or you did something different, you know, as if I control other people with the power of my niceness. If, if I had to have power, believe me, I, I would be exercising that a lot. Uh, the The reality is... Um, that betrayal part can be hard to forgive, but I want to I want to end on on one other area that I think is super key here. When you have a long term thing, forgiveness is kind of uh, a trickier than you think it is. One because there's you know there's a lot of layers to peel away uh, because it's been around for a while and it's a big stuff and all that. So you know that part and you're dealing with that and it's it's a struggle and you're feeling the struggle, but you're getting through that. But here's the thing, if I fully forgive something that's in my past that was big, I have to also recognize that a lot of my thinking, a lot of my personality, a lot of my foundations were built while I had that trauma and that crisis going on in my head. So it's become a part of the fabric of my thinking and my way of relating to the world and all of that. So I need to go through that part with a fine-tooth comb. That's sort of a forgiveness process, but it's also just rethinking relationships and rethinking yourself and and saying, I need to scrub the effect of this out of my life. And that's a more deeper, more introspective thing. But once you get to that, I think that's where the much, much bigger breakthrough and joy and peace come from. I think it's a great point. All, all that these guys said, what I would add on at the end here is kind of ex- exactly as, as Glenn is pointing out that when you do have something that is so foundational to the way you think about things, it can be really insidious into the way it, it kind of creeps into everything. And you, you mentioned in your, in your question, a fully justified concept of 
I don't, this hurts my ability. I feel like this hurts my ability to trust God because he, uh, didn't do anything about it, which is perfectly reasonable, perfectly and accurate. Um, we don't know why he didn't do anything about it, but he could have, and he didn't. So that's perfectly legitimate thing to want to work out with him in, uh, loud and sweary tones as you see fit. And that's totally cool. That's totally on the table where we wander into this, getting into your brain in ways you may not see coming is the idea of someone describes God as a good father. And you think, well, my dad was a jackass. So there's can be no such thing as a good father. Therefore there can be no God. What you've done there is let your jackass father be the thing that defines your entire universe and your entire conception of what is and can be. And that is the kind of thing that's entirely normal with these deep, deep wounds that, that no one ever apologized for and was never fully dealt with. So as, as Glenn talks about exactly rightly about forgiveness being a tough thing, there's also something that's probably going to come in layers over time of how deep this was. And you might get some times where you think that, okay, this is taken care of. You know, you mentioned that I, the incident happened years ago. I still feel it linger every now and then that's totally normal. It's kind of like having an, an old physical wound. There might be days, weeks, months, years where this seems like something you don't have to deal with anymore. And then it pops back up and then you need to apply what these guys are talking about all over again. That doesn't mean you're bad at dealing with this. It doesn't mean that you didn't deal with it. It just means when you're dealing with something that is so, as to use the very good term that Glenn gave us there, foundational, um, it turns out if you have a crack in a foundation of a house, kind of everything that happens in that house is going to mess with that crack a little bit. Uh, you know, you put, you put a, a new, a new couch in just the right spot. And now there's, uh, some weird forces happening and all of a sudden we got to deal with foundation again because everything else is resting on that. That doesn't say anything about you other than that you're in the process. And if you're engaging in the process, using the, the good tools and wisdom that these guys gave you, that's all that can be asked of you. And again, from having lived it, from having seen other people live it, we can say that that, that is going to go good places as going to, to yield fruit if you stay on that path. We're going to go to our final question here. It comes in and says, Psalm 18, 25 to 26 says, To the faithful you show yourself faithful, to the blameless you show yourself blameless, to the pure you show yourself pure, but to the devious you show yourself shrewd. But none of us are blameless or pure, so what does that actually mean for us? And another cool question, we really love these questions where you guys find a Bible verse that hits you a little funny and uh, reach out to us without breaking that yeah. down. And Glenn, where do we start doing that? Well, I, what's funny about this particular question you're asking is it, uh, it's, it's tough to answer it from uh, a more practical, real-world standpoint. And that's what we tend to try to, to do, is to take it out of the world of theology and you know concepts and stuff and put it in more real-world context. But... I'm going to see how well I can do with that here. But let me then start with a a broad theological type of question. Do you think of sin in terms of things that you do wrong, or do you think of sin in terms of what your life is essentially all about? The the flow of your life, the the the, the things that your life is about. If someone had to sum up 
the, the way that you live out your life, would they be able to describe that as fundamentally righteous or fundamentally sinful? Or do you think of sin in terms of things you do wrong? Uh, an individual act that is wrong or right, and and so that you could live a good life, but then do a wrong thing, and then that means you are a wrong person. Uh, I'm trying to kind of highlight the thinking of the overall thrust of your life versus a series of isolated incidents out of context, uh, because I think that's how most people think of sin: it's just isolated events out of context, and I think. The, most people think of sin as a thing that they do, which is wrong, as opposed to a right thing they are not doing. Uh, and and are as the professional term for that is a sin of omission. Uh, but I think if we looked at the sinfulness of most people and you know measured it somehow, we would probably see about eighty. 85% of the sin in their life is stuff they're not doing, uh, as opposed to a an act of wrongness that they are doing. So I think when we think about pure, when we think about blameless, we're saying, I do wrong stuff, so therefore I'm, I am a wrong person and I don't know anything about it. But if we think of it in terms of our overall the thrust of our overall life, what our actual lived out experience is, then it's different. In that case, we start thinking that this must be about a journey. It must be about being perfected. Uh, perfection is not a thing that's attainable this side of heaven, yes, but I am in a journey where I'm being transformed from the inside out, and uh, slowly but surely, the 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 purification process, you know, the 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 heating of the silver and the the dross is mm. rising to the top and being scraped off. That's clearly what my life needs to be all about. Uh, so, if that's the case, then let me introduce to you another kind of big picture concept here. Are you sure you know what? pure and blameless are? Mm. I think that's a big question, because uh, essentially you're saying, and I agree with you 100%, none of us are blameless or pure, but I think we have a sense that we know what pure and blameless means, what it's about. But if the only way that you're thinking of pure and blameless is a, a person, you know, who is is not doing the wrong stuff that I am doing, that that's what pure and blameless is, I would suggest to you that's not what pure and blameless is at all. I think pure, purity and, and blamelessness and holiness and all those are things I'm very, very, very vaguely familiar with because I'm not up to a lot of that. As I grow, as I progress, as I'm being perfected, as I'm becoming more and more like God in in my righteousness, and that believe me, that's a process that's at the very beginning still. <laughs> uh, but as I transform and I understand a little bit more about what it means to live a pure and holy life, then I understand more about God. He reveals Himself to me in that process. So I think that's really what this verse is trying to tell us: is that it's about a discovery of a 
of a world we hardly know, and when we discover those things within ourselves, we can understand God in a much deeper way. I think that's a fantastic place to start this off, and a lot of great stuff. And Lee, where do we take it from there? You know, I I think about my <clears throat> I think about my own kids, and just kind of the the way that they feel about the way that they're treated. So, um, and, and the way that I was treated as a kid. Um, you know, I, I think about the the uh, the idea of being told like when I was a little kid, like you're going to learn how to clean a bathroom. You know, and it was one of those things that I felt like I was being treated harshly, that I was being that that I had to spend Saturday, you know, learning how to how to deep clean this bathroom or whatever. And then I get to college and feel and realize I'm the only person who knows how to do this Um, or whatever the case is. Um, And there's a there's a perspective that we feel when we're being treated a certain way based on what we think we deserve. Um, and what we think the world is about. Um, if I, if I think the world is about me having a great time, then anything that causes me to grow, I'm going to think is harsh treatment. Um, I'm going to think I'm being treated harshly. I'm going to think I'm being treated in a hard way. Um, I, I think that, that people who love the Lord see the way that he deals with them in, in, in a different way than, than people who don't know him. Um, I, I firmly believe that the Lord is always dealing with people in a way that brings them, that offers them the opportunity to bring them close to knowing Him. Um, he may be pushing them. He may be, he may be uh, turning up the heat in certain things of their life. He may be just absolutely blessing them. But in everything that He's doing, He's always in this program of offering people the opportunity to come into a place where they know Him more and some call that hard dealing and some call it kindness and patience so theologically um the the truth of the situation is that anybody that's called on the name of Jesus has been declared completely righteous period the end um i i, I didn't earn that i i didn't act in a righteous way i didn't act in a pure and blameless way but i because i've because i've called in the name of Jesus i've been declared by the heart of God and by the judgment of God, completely and totally pure, righteous, and holy. No one can take that away from me. Nobody can say boo on the other side of that. That is completely and totally sealed, and the the story is over on that. And even though I haven't been a pure person, I've been declared pure. And he treats me with complete and total love. The The issue is that we have a really weird viewpoint of what love is. Um, we kind of have a tendency to think that love means, like, if you love me, that means you'll do whatever I want you to do whatever I want you to do, however I want you to treat me, that's what you'll do. The truth is that love is always working for a person's best. That's what love means. If I love you, I'm always working for your best. So when Jesus said to some uh, religious leaders and Pharisees, you guys are a brood of vipers. You clean the outside of the dish, but you leave the inside of the dish completely unwashed. That was love because he was drawing those guys to a place of being honest about themselves. 
And when the same mouth, the same Jesus said to a woman who was caught in the act of adultery, I do not condemn you, that was love because he was drawing her to himself. Love sometimes feels harsh. Love sometimes feels like an overflow of, of kindness and patience, but love is always working for the best. And so that's, that's the thing that we've got to understand in this. Sometimes the, the action of the Lord is going to feel shrewd to me. Sometimes it's going to feel like patience. He's always working to draw me towards himself. He's always working for my best. And depending on the way, the, the position I'm in towards him, I'm going to feel different ways about that. Love is <laughs> Love can be incredibly gentle and kind, and love can be strong. Love can declare a boundary. Love can be difficult to bear, but the Lord is always going to work towards love in me. And and when I call out to him, I am declared completely pure. The The question is, what is my attitude toward him? That's really what I want to look at is his treatment towards me is always in the direction of love. What is my perception of that? It could be one way or it could be the other, but uh, the 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 deeper I grow in maturity towards him, the more I'm going to understand he's always, always working toward a place of drawing me close to himself and always working from a place of love. That's all fantastic stuff from from both of these guys here. I would I would tack on to the end of what Lee says there, exactly picking up where he was laying off there about your attitude towards God, and I think it. it plays into your attitude towards the world and your attitude towards other people. If we look at this verse through that lens that Lee is giving us, and we can see a hint in that because it, the verse after the one you quote, uh, Psalm eighteen twenty seven says, you save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. So if you look at this, the first three things you're comparing here all are pretty similar variations on a theme, faithful, blameless, pure, then the last one, to the devious, you show yourself shrewd. There's a lot of people in the Old Testament, David included sometimes, who wrote this psalm, um, who are trying to get one over on God. Who are trying to, to do schemes and machinations and shrewd dealings and, and get the most they can out of something. And it never particularly goes well. I think what you're reading in this verse, to my mind, goes hand in hand with Jesus's commands to be like a little child, because they are, uh, well, in theory anyway, Lee, as, as the parent among us, can probably uh, correct me on this, they're not shrewd. They're not, they might try to be, but they don't ever really pull it off. So there's, we're, we're supposed to approach God with uh, the faithfulness and the blamelessness, and again, purity in that way that Glenn was defining it, not in the the way that a purity culture, you may think of yourself as being without any kind of fault, but not trying to have an angle, not trying to get one over, not trying to put your best foot forward or make your best case, but just coming before God plainly and as you are and in that childlike way yields a lot of results. And obviously, uh, you can't do that in every one of your relationships in, in the world. That was just not the way the world works, but it's a very interesting uh, idea to think of approaching more things in your life that way and seeing what you get kind of based on this psalm. Because I, I love that 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 part of verse 27, 
where it talks about bringing, comparing all this to humility as opposed to being haughty compared to having the angle yeah. and seeing the, seeing the way things all play and seeing the wheels within wheels and going based on that. Do you, are there places in your life, particularly there are, we, I can be very comfortable saying there are prior places in your dealings with God where you'd get a lot more out of it. If you were just childlike and humble and straight up and went directly at things in that way. I think there definitely would be, and it's a really cool idea to take from this verse that these guys have given you as opposed to something that at the face of it might seem pretty judgy and might seem pretty counterintuitive to a lot of the, the stuff you read in the Bible, but there's really neat layers that these guys have given us. Okay. If you have a question for us, say that podcast at gmail.com bridgechicago.tumble.com slash ask. If you want to keep that entirely anonymous, don't forget to check out more stuff from us, including our bridge cast every week. You can join us live Sundays at 7 PM central to get involved in the chat, or you can check it out whenever it's convenient for you over at facebook.com slash the bridge Chicago. We have been missing a certain, uh, Jed like presence on this show today. So we'll take out the song. This is Jed and our newly formed bridge house band. Yeah. Ooh, leading the men and women of the bridge in the song for good reasons. Hey, with that, thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. Attention, outer space aliens. We have many uplifting things to tell you about <laughs> Jesus. But first, promise to take us with you because some of these people are crazy. <laughs> yeah. And those claps are right on, man. I'm feeling that. Keep those going. Everybody in the room, man. Don't hold back. You're going to have more fun if you put your hands together. I got four good reasons to time now. I got four good reasons to believe. From the scars on his hands to the scars on his face. I got four good reasons to believe. Here we go. One. Jesus loves me. Two. Jesus loves me. Three. Jesus loves me. Four. God so loved me. Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, three, Jesus loves me, for God so loved me. That's it. That's the whole song, man. You got it. So we'll take it back to the top now and turn this volume up. I got four good reasons to believe. From the scars on his hands to the scars on his face. I got four good reasons to believe. Here we go. What? Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me, three, Jesus loves me, for God so loved me, one, Jesus loves me, two, Jesus loves me, three, Jesus loves me, for God so loved me, oh man, y'all are killing it, here's my question, we're doing one more time, let's take that volume all the way up, man, when we count those numbers, I got four good reasons to believe, from the scars on his head. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves for God. Oh yeah. What? Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me for God so loved me. You did great. You did awesome. Grab your seats. I love you. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to the bridge. 